A group of hikers make their way across a large estate in Stony Point, New York. Nearing an abandoned smokehouse, the group pauses. There is a fetid, putrid smell on the air. Going closer to the large stone structure, they appear through the doorway-sized opening and let out a collective gasp. Partially eaten body, badly burnt, lies on a shelf inside. A black leather mask, the kind used in F&M, with a zipper over the mouth. The only thing that covers the face. Soon, the police will be called, followed by the morgue wagon, and later, reporters, whose cameras' flashbulbs will split the air as they attempt to record gruesome scene. The next day, the papers will scream, giving name to the case, which will go down in infamy as one of the most violent and sadistic in New York City's sordid history. Eventually, a culprit will be found, and with him, his employer will be implicated, and for years after, the story will be known as the Death Mask Case. Hello again, and welcome to the DeathCast. I am your host, best-selling independent author, Ian Totten. I'd like to thank you for joining me again as we prepare to take a look this week at the Death Mask case. Some of you may be familiar with this particular tale, while others are not. But believe me when I say it's a fairly disturbing story. Before we get into this week's case, however, I have my normal batch of plugs. If you'd like to follow me on social media, I can be found on YouTube, Instagram, Facebook, and MeWe at Ian Totten Author. You can also find my novels on Amazon, Kindle, Audible, Barnes & Noble, and anywhere else that you find your books, you can just go there and type my name in, Ian Todd. If you'd like to help support the show, like and subscribe it, share it with your friends on social media, leave a five-star review wherever it is that you get your podcasts. If you'd like to sign up for the mailing list and check out some real cool merchandise in the clothing store, go to corpsecreekpublishing.com. A link will pop up for the mailing list, and you'll see a tab for clothing. I believe there's shirts, baseball caps, coffee cups. If you would like to don't make a donation to the show, you can find me on both PayPal and Venmo at Ian Tot. Book of the week this week is the same as it has been for the last few weeks. The Black Wasp by Alistair Cross. It's the third in his Vampire of Crimson Cove series. As I have stated before, Alistair is an extremely talented writer who has an almost lyrical manner to his prose. And if you are into some good gory horror, go check him out. That's The Black Wasp 
by Alistair Cross. Now that the plugs are out of the way, I've got my coffee, I've got my cigarettes. Let's go into the crypt. Almost immediately, the Stony Point Police Department had a number of leads available to them in this particular case. As I had stated in the trailer, the body was found on a very large estate. In fact, the property owner was an officer in the United Nations Developmental Fund by the name of John Legueros. So naturally, they began to look at the family, you know, this very high-profile group who were seemingly untouchable. Something that would prove to be the case with other individuals that were involved in the murder. Detective Sergeant William Franks of the Stony Point Police Department was given the case, and after the body was brought to the morgue and the mask was removed, it was found that the victim was able to be identified, and they did this because the victim's face was fairly well-preserved due to the leather mask. They started looking around the area and in New York trying to discern, you know, if a missing persons report had been placed with an individual matching the description, and they eventually were able to find a missing persons report as well as flyers. And the victim's name was Eagle Dag Vesti, who was a 26-year-old Fashion Institute of Technology student from Norway. After speaking with Vesti's friends and schoolmates, they learned that he was most probably involved in the S&M underground in New York City, specifically the homosexual side of it. So investigators started looking into the underground S&M clubs that were fairly prolific in New York City in the late 70s and early to mid-1980s. And if you have ever seen the Al Pacino movie, I believe it came out in 1980, called Cruising, it paints a fairly graphic depiction of the S&M nightlife in New York City at that time, particularly what has historically been referred to as Leatherman. If you don't know what a Leatherman is... Really, you don't have to look much further than the bands, the village people and their quote-unquote biker, or the band Judas Priest in the late 1970s up into the mid-1980s. In fact, their lead singer, Rob Halford, has gone on the record stating that he took the leather and chains and spikes motif that the band became famous for, which in fact influenced the rest of heavy metal directly from the 
gay nightclubs and sex shops of Soho in London. So that's this, you know, a really quick, brief overview of the types of places that cops were looking into and investigating as they tried to figure out how the victim ended up on an estate in Stony Point. And back to the movie Cruising for a moment, in the movie, you know, it's pretty apparent that there is a lot of alcohol and cocaine consumption going on inside of these nightclubs, as well as some pretty graphic depictions of sex and bondage. Something that the investigating detective said they themselves witnessed while investigating. The more they looked into the case, however, the more apparent it became that the victim had more likely than not been picked up elsewhere rather than inside one of these S&M clubs as the majority of the people inside of these clubs, it was a really close-knit community. And the more people from this community they talked to, the more apparent it became that none of them really knew who the victim was. Although there were murmurs of a group of men known among the community, you know, kind of in hushed talks, you know, undertones, these individuals would be spoken of, that were much more aggressive uh, and sadistic than your typical gay practitioner of sadomasochism. So the police turned their attention away from the S&M clubs and started looking into the more mainstream clubs where, you know, the nightlife in New York really thrive. Places like uh, Peter Gation's Limelight and Studio 54, where it was much more likely that individuals who did not know each other might hook up for an evening as Trist. While they were looking into these other clubs, they were also throwing the Legeros name around as, if you'll remember, the body had been found inside of a pre-Revolutionary War smokehouse on their property in Stony Point, and they quickly learned that Legeros had a son named Bernard, who was known throughout the more mainstream clubs as somebody who was heavily involved in both S&M and cocaine and drug use as well as for his employment by a man by the name of Andrew Crispo. Andrew Crispo was a very well-known, very wealthy art dealer who it was said had a fairly healthy appetite for both cocaine and young men. And Crispo was known as someone who really rubbed shoulders with and hobnobbed 
amongst a group of you know who's who in the world of both the arts and entertainment. He was known to party with people at Studio 54 as well as the Limelight and really any other club in New York City that was in favor at that time and was considered to be chic by the people who decided what was in at a given moment. So, four days after the body was found, police brought in Bernard Legueros and began to question the 23-year-old about what had been found on his father's property. And it did not take long for Bernard to begin to confessing to the murder. And what he said was really sensational and in fact would very quickly be splashed all across papers in New York City. Bernard said that he and his employer Crispo had gone out that night looking for another individual specifically with the intent of taking them back, raping and torturing them before killing them. When they were unable to find this individual, they settled on Vesti, whom they met at the Limelight Club. Accounts really differ over what happened next. Uh, I know the, I believe it was the New York Post and New York Magazine both said that they took the man back to Crispo's art gallery where he was handcuffed, hooded, and sadistically assaulted over a period of hours while the two of them continued to ingest copious amounts of drugs and alcohol. Other sources state that the trio left the limelight at which point the victim was handcuffed and hooded and he was driven to Legaros's parents' estate in Stony Point. Bernard claimed that once at his parents' estate, Crispo forced the victim to kneel before egging him, him, meaning Bernard, to shoot the man in the back of the head with a 22 caliber rifle twice, at which point the body was moved into the smokehouse and set on fire. Police were able to get a search warrant for Crispo's art gallery, and it was there that they found the rifle that was used in the murder, although Crispo vehemently denied any involvement in the murder. The police were quickly able to establish that Crispo was very well known in the gay underground in New York City, specifically the S&M scene. Unfortunately, with the exception of the gun that was found in the gallery, they were unable to find any other corroborating evidence beyond Bernard's statement that Crispo had been involved and in fact egged him on and commanded that he kill the man. That leads us to who was Andrew Crispo. 
Crispo and how had he ended up owning this very wealthy and world-famous art gallery. Crispo was born at some point in 1945 in Philadelphia, and by all accounts, he had a pretty horrific upbringing that included massive amounts of abuse that ran the gamut from physical and emotional all the way to sexual and he ended up being raised in an orphanage in Philadelphia. Now, according to David France in his book, Bag of Toys, Crispo knew almost right away that he was gay, and he grew up as a fairly street-smart individual who, again, according to the book, Bag of Toys, began turning tricks in Rittenhouse Square in Philadelphia. This eventually led the young man to dalliances with individuals such as Liberace and a man by the name of Henry McEhenny, who was the chairman of the board of the Philadelphia Museum of Art. Apparently, Crispo ended up leaving Philadelphia sometime in 1964 for unspecified reasons. When Crispo ended up in Manhattan, he started out working in the art world as a runner. That is, an individual who basically handles transactions from a seller to a purchaser. And eventually, he was able to get himself a job with a respectable art dealer, which he in turn transferred into opening his own art gallery on East 57th Street in the Fuller Building. Apparently, at this time, uh, Crispo was in a relationship with a decorator by the name of Arthur Smith, who transformed the gallery into the go-to place in the world of fine art. Now, beyond the book Bag of Toys, I have not really been able to verify this next bit of information, but apparently one of Crispo's more high-profile clients was a baron, And this baron also had an art dealer who was pretty much hired round the clock. This individual, whose name was Franco Rapetti, apparently was having an affair with the baroness. And at some point tried to shake Andrew Crispo down in the mid-1970s only to commit suicide three years later while high on cocaine by throwing himself out a 58th Street apartment building window. In any regard, Crispo apparently helped to get the man's body back home, and this so endeared Crispo to the Baron that he turned around and made Crispo his official art dealer. Supposedly, Crispo went so far as to fudge documents when selling pieces to the Baron in order that 
he would not lose his patronage if the Baron learned of their true origins and decided to go with the individuals who had originally had them. Crispo ended up using the Baron's name and patronage to open up new doors for himself. All the while, he had begun to dabble in cocaine as well as in the S&M world in Manhattan. What is known is that as Crispo's drug abuse worsened, he began to surround himself with some questionable individuals, one of whom was Bernard Legaros. Supposedly around this time, Crispo started not paying his bills as well as, you know, reneging on his taxes. And stories began to filter out here and there about the sex games that he and his entourage were participating in, with one tale being that they had called a young man at a payphone outside of a club and enticed him to come up to Crispo's apartment, at which point Crispo directed a group of graffiti artists, all of them high on cocaine, in the beating, torturing, and sexual assault of said young man. Again, this is all according to the book Box of Toys. It is known that Bernard was referred to by Crispo as both his bodyguard and his executioner, which leads us up to Bernard's arrest and Crispo being questioned by the police. Uh, of course, naturally, his lawyer, Roy Cohen, you know, denied all of the charges and police were only able to bring charges against Bernard. At trial, Bernard stated that the manager of the Limelight Club was their initial intended target and that the man refused to go with them. At which point, they turned their attention to Vesti, who was a willing participant in what was to come, but only up until a certain point. Now, prosecutors ended up deciding not to press charges against Crispo, again, because they didn't have any real evidence that he had actually committed the murder. And, in fact, Bernard's defense attorney said that he was, you know, zooted out of his mind on coke and was completely under Crispo's command at this point in their relationship and that it was Crispo himself who had directed all of the uh, action that evening. They also, they being the prosecutors, stated that they knew that Crispo would continuously plead the fifth if they attempted to press him on issues regarding the sex and murder Something that, in fact, did happen when they were able to get him on the stand for a brief period of time during the trial. Crispo refused to self-incriminate and pleaded the fifth. Which, 
is odd to me because Crispo did admit to helping Bernard carry logs and gasoline in order to emulate the body, but the prosecution decided not to go forward, which makes me think that, you know, Crispo's reputation, wealth, and influence probably played a large part in that, as they had one man who had admitted to committing the murder. As for Bernard, his lawyer tried to play it off that his client was a drug-addled, mentally ill individual who was completely under Crispo's control at the time of the murder, and that Bernard had, in fact, gone out that evening with Crispo with the sole intention of finding a man to abuse and kill as, according to Bernard, Crispo at one point had engaged in a night of S&M sex with an individual during which he beat and humiliated said individual until they bled before threatening to kill the man, afterwards stating that the victim was not, in fact, a real man, and that from that point on, he would kill any gay man that he happened to have an encounter with. Bernard was eventually found guilty and sentenced to 33 years behind bars, but the story isn't over there as the murder trial brought another man out from hiding who stated that he was a victim of Crispo's. However, This did not come out until after Andrew Crispo had been arrested by authorities for tax evasion. He owed millions of dollars in taxes on $10 million in profit that he just had decided he wasn't going to pay. So Crispo ended up being sentenced to seven years for the tax evasion, which was eventually reduced down to five years. While Crispo is sitting in prison for this tax evasion, a 28-year-old man by the name of Mark Leslie came forward. Now, Leslie was an English teacher from Montreal, and he claimed that Crispo... And four other young men, one of whom was Bernard Lagarasa, had imprisoned him at Crispo's art gallery on September 20th, 1984. Now, according to Leslie, when he met Crispo, he admitted that he liked to get hit and feeling a little bit of pain. Apparently, they went back to Crispo's gallery after this, at which point... Leslie was handcuffed, beaten, tortured, sodomized, and humiliated by the four men, with Crispo 
basically acting as the ringleader during the entire encounter, screaming things at him throughout and threatening to have him killed. It should be noted, however, that it came out at trial that after this encounter, Leslie and Crispo went out to dinner, and apparently Leslie actually paid for their meal. This went to trial, and Crispo was eventually found not guilty, as the jury felt that Leslie had participated in the encounter of his own free will and volition. According to one of the jurists, they heard that Leslie had gone out with Crispo once, and that on their second time out, they had gone out partying, snorting cocaine, at which point they went back to the gallery where... Leslie was assaulted and left bleeding, crying, and handcuffed. This jurist further went on to state Leslie did not protect himself by saying there's a limit to what I'm willing to do. There was a mistaken idea of what each side meant by domination. Also during the trial, Crispo was described as a master manipulator who deals art by day and torture by night. The victim released a statement after the trial stating that my purpose in bringing this charge was to prevent Andrew Crispo from beating, torturing, or killing other young men. Justice Atlas ruling throughout the trial and the subtle bias of his charge to the jury make a profoundly disturbing statement in our society is acceptable to brutalize and even murder gay men. One thing that did come out of this trial, however, is that Bernard Legaros agreed to testify against Crispo while admitting guilt to the kidnapping. This case brings up other aspects of New York City in the late 70s and early to mid-1980s in that during this time period, and I'm relating this from a very reliable source who was in New York during this time period, was in the... Studio 54 scene and went to all of the Peter Gation clubs and was in fact actually involved for a short while with Michael Allig and his club kids that there was an undercurrent of fear amongst the gay community in New York as rumors were circulating that a man who was known only as Sir was stalking, torturing, mutilating, and murdering members of the gay community, and that this individual was known to police by their real name. However, the police did not press charges against this individual because of both who they were and how much power they wielded. And I know that sounds like a, you know, a story, somebody spinning a yarn, but there is a basis of reality in that particular tale concerning the doodler 
from California who was an artist who was known to find young gay men and convince them to let him sketch them, at which point he would rape, murder, and dispose of their bodies. In that case, which happened in San Francisco, it was said at the time the police knew who the individual was, but that they did not have either enough evidence to move forward, or that the individual was fairly high up the food chain, and therefore they were not going to ruin this individual's public reputation and image by bringing charges against them over what was considered a non-problem, which is how law enforcement looked at murders within the gay community at that time, not just in major cities, but really across the entire United States, as I've talked about when I was covering the Atlanta child murders, a lot of states still considered anything that had to do with gays, be they gay men or lesbians, as a criminal act, and therefore things that affected their community, specifically violent crimes, were kind of looked at with a blind eye as they didn't consider these people as really having rights. So what happened to the participants in this particular crime? Well, Andrew Crispo ended up serving three years on his tax evasion conviction. In 1985, he was involved in a dispute with the Guggenheim Museum over a sculpture called the Muse, which ended with the museum paying him $2 million. In 1989, while in prison, Crispo's home in the Hamptons suffered a, an explosion from a natural gas leak. And in a court ruling in 1991, the Long Island utility company Lilco paid Crispo $7.6 million for his home and the art collection that was lost inside of it. He was really inactive through much of the 1990s after being released from prison. In fact, it seems as though he had largely retired to his estate down in South Carolina. However, in 2016, 17, and 18, supposed representatives of CRISPO got into a dispute as they claim to have an uncatalogued Picasso sketch, which apparently they were trying to sell. However, Crispo's actual representatives came out and declared the sketch a fraud, stating that they had never owned such a sketch and that he had not been bandying this piece of artwork around for sale, and therefore the sketch was a fraud. As for Bernard Legaros, he was paroled in 2016 as it was stated by the parole board that he had 
pretty much rehabilitated while in Attica State Prison and grown as a human being while furthering his education. In granting his parole, it was noted that he would seek and maintain either employment or become a student, submit to substance abuse testing, and will not consume alcoholic beverages or frequent places where alcohol is served unless permitted by his parole officer. This was in January of 2019 after serving over 30 years behind bars. That is it for the Death Cast this week. I hope you have enjoyed my look at the lurid and disturbing case of the death mask murder and the movings and machinations of the individuals involved. Again, if you enjoy the show, please leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. You can find all of my books on Amazon, Kindle, as well as Audible. Just search for Ian Totten in the search bar and they should come right up. Until next week, the Deathcast is a production of Corpse Creek Publishing. Stay safe and stay morbid. Welcome, welcome to, to the Dead Cast.